Hello, friends. This is Dr. Benjamin Smith, lecturer in philosophy with Catholic Studies Academy. Welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our digital space where we explore the 2,000-year Catholic intellectual tradition. Today, I'm coming uh, to you uh, solo uh, to talk to you about uh, the connection between God and politics. This is a topic that we have visited before, but I want to approach it from a specific angle. That is, I want to talk about it from the angle of or really focusing on the question of how God rules over political community within the hierarchy of law, that is, within the hierarchy of the uh, eternal law and the natural law as developed by St. Thomas Aquinas. So I want to put a, a definite limit on this conversation, or sorry, on this uh, um, exploration. Uh, that is, I'm I'm going to be really trying to e exposit the view of St. Thomas Aquinas as clearly as possible. So I'm not stating here my personal opinion very much, or I'm not trying to say anything about what is Catholic doctrine on the matter. Rather, I am simply sort of exploring, expositing uh, the view of uh, St. Thomas. And I'm uh, particularly going to be focused on, as I say, the way in which God rules over politics within the hierarchy of law as developed by Thomas Aquinas. I think that you'll find this a really useful approach. I think you'll find it a, an approach that clarifies uh, really the central questions and points of connection. This is, of course, a, a perennial topic, that is the relationship between church and state, um, the relationship between politics and religion. Um, but it's also a topic that has been, um, uh, you know, uh, of greater importance in recent times. Uh, that is, um, especially with the uh, COVID regulations that came down not too long ago, uh, you know, we, we don't want to forget <laughs> it was just a short time ago that some areas were requiring churches to close, right? And this brought up some interesting questions about how the the authority of the church and how the authority of the political state are uh, related to one another, right? Another way in which this is uh, this issue has come up is uh, with you know recent uh, accusations by those on what I would call the political left, I think it's a fair uh, assessment, or in the media, uh, which uh, tends to lean uh, in the direction of the left, um, who have accused some on the right, particularly, we'll say, uh, evangelicals, of what they call Christian nationalism, right? This is, of course, never really defined, uh, but nevertheless, it's used as a sort of pejorative um, and and it's sort of, you know, well, if, you know, conservative evangelicals favor Christian nationalism, then, you know, conservative evangelicals must be wrong because Christian nationalism is obviously wrong. Now, I don't have any particular view or understanding exactly of what that means, Christian nationalism, but I know that that um, accusation does, again, bring up the issue of the relationship between church and state. Very interestingly, uh, some um, evangelicals have embraced that view, right? That that label. That is, they have uh, embraced the 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 view that, um, or sort of uh, taken on the label of Christian nationalist, uh, and there, that has excited a really um, 
really pretty strong and interesting uh, debate among evangelicals, again, about the relationship between church and state. So on any, you know, sort of number of topics, right, we find this um, coming up over and over again. I'll just one last one that uh, I'll bring up is, you know, when, you know, the, um, you know, when certain Supreme Court justices have been, you know, uh, approved recently, you know, people have explicitly said, you know, there's just too many Catholics, right, on the Supreme Court, which, of course, is a, a form of uh, religious bias and bigotry. But nevertheless, um, the, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's this sort of accusation, right, that, um, that there's some, so that this brings about some sort of disordered relationship between church and state. So again, this is a topic of perennial importance. Um, it's you know addressed in papal encyclicals and in um, erudite theological tomes, um, but it's also one that is uh, constantly relevant. So as I've already stated, I'm going to approach this from the point of view of uh, Thomas's understanding of the hierarchy of law. I think this would be very useful. Uh, in addition, I want to um, talk about it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to you know, limit my conversation to just that view, right? That is the view developed by uh, St. Thomas. So we're going to um, start from the top here, really, uh, what uh, St. Thomas would have to say. Now, most of this material, as probably many of you know, comes from uh, the, the uh, Prima Secunda of the Summa Theologia, uh, where Thomas talks about uh, law. Um, very first, we need to deal with what, um, to start with, start with just, you know, what does law mean in general, right? And Thomas uh, defines law as a measure of human acts uh, that compels and forbids um, issued uh, in accordance with reason by legitimate authority for the sake of the common good. That's quite a definition. <laughs> First, so, uh, you know, to start with the most obvious point, right, that is that it is a... Um, a measure of human acts, right? It's a standard. It's a norm of human acts. That makes sense. Um, that compels and forbids. Now, if it's going to compel and forbid, it needs to be an imperative, right? Because it's really only an imperative that compels and forbids. When I say stop or go close the door, right? I am commanding, right? That I am compelling someone uh, to uh, go and close the door, right? Or to stop a certain behavior. So it's a command about human acts that compels, that is, requires, go and do, right? Um, or forbids, do not do, right? Um, I think that's fairly straightforward. You could just sort of, I mean, you can just imagine Thomas sort of, you know, gathering this inductively, right, uh, from the various sources that he has to, to look at. Very important, this is not a mere act of the will. It's not the will of the sovereign. So this is not a voluntaristic form of, of view of law. Rather, it's a view of law in which uh, law is seen to be a precept of reason, right? Uh, so it is some, uh, it, that is, what that means is it's based on truth and reality, right? Uh, the truth and reality really about um, what are the ends or the goods of the human person? This is so important, right? The law doesn't just sort of arbitrarily hang out there in Thomas's view. Rather, law is connected to what is really desirable. So Thomas says, you know, um, in the order of execution, right, um, you know, the, um, 
uh, you know, command may come first. Uh, but in the order of um, reality or causality, really, the end comes first, right? So what re- what what goes on? What's going on here is the idea that the legislator, so there's the legitimate authority. I'll come back to that in a minute. Sees that there are certain good human goods, certain ends, right? Certain activities and operations that are really desirable for the human person, and then issues commands on the basis of these ends, right? So compels behavior that's consistent with those ends, and uh, forbids. Uh, behavior that's contrary to those ends. So it's a work of reason in that sense. It's a a work of reason based on, these are laws then based on what is truly desirable. So it's not very interestingly and very importantly, it is not the law that makes the actions good. Rather, the actions are good and the law comes along to regulate the activities of the community in line with those goods that are to be pursued. Um, this, of course, not just anybody can give a, a command, right? Again, we're talking about law in general, right? So, uh, it, it, you know, various regimes, various communities have different kinds of authorities. We could even see this at different levels. Of course, Thomas has in mind the political authority, but we could also think about sort of like, you know, uh, uh, within the church or within a uh, organization or corporation, right? There are levels uh, uh, of authority, right? Um you know, within my within the you know, the parish where I work, there are certain people who uh, I can sort of you know um, direct. Right, there are others who I cannot. Um, but uh, very importantly, then within political community, or say the community of the church, either one, these are the only two perfectly complete communities in the Thomas tradition. Um, you know, there are established authorities. Now we'll leave aside the church here for a second because that's by divine establishment. But within, you know, uh, the human political communities, there will be different kinds of established authorities. Sometimes it'll be by, you know, uh, monarchy. Sometimes it'll be by uh, a republic and voting. Sometimes it'll be constitutional. Sometimes it'll be informal and customary, et cetera. But in any community, there will be a set of norms uh, for establishing the uh, political community. Uh, sorry, for establishing the legitimate authority. Uh, and finally, the legitimate authority issues these um, <clears throat> commands, right, um, in view of those natural goods we talked about, but for the common good rather than the individual good, right? So the idea here is that we're not just trying to benefit a faction, right, uh, or an individual or the ruler himself, but rather the ruler is aiming towards the common good of the whole. Okay, I think that is a, uh, I mean, again, we could spend a whole episode just talking about this view of law, but this is the general view of law uh, that Thomas uses uh, in his work when he's thinking about all the various kinds of law that we're going to examine. There's always going to be an authority, right, Uh, who has, um, by custom or by divine establishment, uh, the, um, or maybe natural law in some instances, uh, has the right to issue commands, right? But not arbitrary commands, commands based on what's really desirable, what's really desirable not for the individual, but for the whole, right? That is for the common good of the whole, uh, and uh, is rooted in truth. That is, um, uh, as I've already said, uh, a perception, um, uh, an understanding, right? Proper and true judgment about what's really uh, desirable for the human person and for the community as a whole.
All right. So Thomas very interestingly takes this uh, view of law and applies it across a wide variety of sort of um, domains. Starting at the very highest level, he talks about eternal law. So here we're taking sort of the um, moving from causes to effects approach, which you might call in an informal way, the theological uh, approach. Um, that is, we're going from the highest perspective down to the more particular. We're beginning with the universal and moving to the more particular. So the eternal law, right? What are we talking about here? Well, there's only one being, <laughs> you know, one reality that is strictly uh, eternal without qualification. And of course, that's God, right? So what he is talking about here is the plan of the universe you'd say, um, that has always existed in the mind of God, right? So very important, as I've said in previous um, episodes of Take Care Without Captain, when we talked about providence of predestination, God doesn't change his mind. Um, the, um, uh, you know, God has a, a plan for us. That's true. <laughs> um uh, but it's a it's an infallible plan that always takes place. Um, here, I want to emphasize the normative side of that rather than the metaphysical side. If you want to think about the metaphysical side of God's eternal plan for us, again, I would recommend that you uh, go back in our channel, look up the videos. You can find it uh, on um, uh, on our YouTube channel for uh, predestination, according to Thomas Aquinas, and uh, providence, according to Thomas Aquinas. Um, but in any event, you know, here we're looking at the normative side. That is, the the plan insofar as it has the character of law. Now, does this plan in the mind of God have the character of law? And of course, Thomas Aquinas is going to say, indeed, it does. And that is because it fits the definition of law. Um, we could begin first and foremost with the the, uh, the fact that God uh, is the established, legitimate authority over all of being and all of creation. Now, of course, he was not elected to this office, right? He has this per se, that is, in view of what God is in himself, he is the ruler of the universe. From, you know, there's a variety of ways to approach this. Um, you could say with Anselm or Augustine, talk about his perfection and his right to rule from that uh, view or uh, his view, um, the view that he is the good itself and all things are rightly ordered to him. Uh, that is certainly something that Thomas uh, uh, talks about. Uh, you could lean into the idea of God as first cause, right? In which case, he quite literally is the Lord of all things, right? You know, nothing happens that is not an effect of his primary causality. Uh, so, um, just in virtue of who and what he is as creator, as first cause, as supreme good, God is, in fact, right, metaphysically the ruler of the universe without our volition, without our consent, uh, without our vote, right? Worth pondering, I think. In any event, um, God uh, is the supreme ruler as a matter of fact, and we know that he directs all things to himself because to do otherwise would be irrational and unjust. He is the supreme good, and as the supreme good, all other goods are subordinated to his own divine essence, and therefore all things are directed to himself, 
as the common good of the universe, right? So if you think about it in those terms, right, um, you know, God is uh, has authority over all things and directs all things to the common good of the universe. Of course, God does so with supreme wisdom, right? That is, God does not um, arbitrarily make decrees, but rather uses his intellect and will, right, uh, together, right, and uses his mind to direct things towards uh, that which is really good and really desirable. Uh, and so these are edicts of God's wisdom, God's mind, right? Uh, the reason of God, you could say. Um, and so in this way, we can see that um, um, these are laws, right? They have the character of law because, in fact, right, what God has has planned and willed is commanded, Right? So again, what God has planned and willed, intended and created for the universe um, does have the character of a command because it comes from the supreme being. Right? And so we are compelled to obey it, right? Uh, and uh, prohibited uh, from disobedience. So there is a sort of, uh, as Thomas talks about, a type of pattern or plan in the mind of God that has the character of law, right? Um, so, you know, uh, we could think about this in terms of eternal decrees, if you like. So, you know, it's, uh, against the, it was, you know, eternally decreed that, you know, Abraham would be the father of faith. For example, if we can take a, the view of sort of the providential metaphysical side, you could also say that it's a matter of eternal decree, um, that, um, you know, uh, the God alone should be honored and, and worshiped, right? Um, anything else would be contrary to God's supremacy, right? So that is a matter of an eternal decree. There we have a, a normative decree, right? That is a decree about what should or should not be done. So we have then uh, in God an eternal plan that because of who and what God is takes on the character and nature of law. And that law compels us and prohibits us. Um, and when we violate that law, we, of course, would suffer uh, the due penalty. All right. I take that to be a fairly sound uh, position. Certainly, St. Thomas is not at all uh, unique in developing uh, this view. You can find something very similar in both Augustine and Anselm. Um, you could also find something similar uh, in, in some of the uh, Eastern Fathers as well. Um, we don't talk too much, unfortunately, uh, about the, the Lordship of God uh, anymore, about the, the idea that God is a king and that God commands and forbids. It doesn't, for some reason, this language of invite is always so important in contemporary church rhetoric. I'm not sure why. Um, the Ten Commandments are not invitations, they're not suggestions, they're commands, they're prohibitions um, or um, mandates uh, in the more positive cases. In any event, the highest law then is this eternal law, eternal because it always has been and always will be, it resides in the mind of God. Now, how does this help us with respect to politics? Well, a great deal of the eternal law is a matter of God's um, 
contingent volition. That is, God has, there are many things that are contingent with respect to his essence. For example, it was not absolutely necessary that he decide to save man from sin, and he could have done so in a variety of ways. The way he did choose, Thomas would say, is the most appropriate. Um, but, you know, uh, he could have chosen different people. Uh, it was a lot in re- redemptive history, you know, uh, that could have been different. You know, um, Joshua played a very important role, but could it have been someone else? Um in redemptive history, probably it'd be hard to argue that Josh was absolutely, you know, metaphysically necessary. It's a matter of God's, uh, of, of the contingency, right, uh, within God's plan. Um, nevertheless, right, um, uh, we should recognize that there are parts of the eternal law that are absolute, right? And that is, of course, things like the prohibition on murder, prohibition on idolatry, uh, things of that nature. That is, these are things that are contrary to the very essence of God, and therefore are things that God uh, necessarily uh, prohibits. So there are parts of the, the, so why is that important? Well, there's a lot that's hidden to us, right, in the sense that um, it might be because it's contingent or either because it's above our, you know, reason's ability to grasp, right? Nevertheless, there is a part of the eternal law that may be known through the right use of human reason, and that is the natural law. This is what's talked about in Romans 1 and 2, okay? This is the law that's written upon the heart, right, by which uh, the you know, human reason may discern and apply, uh, by which we can know good and evil in many basic matters. Um, the foundation of the natural law um, in uh, human beings, right, is uh, are the impressed natural inclinations. Now, this is, gets a little complicated. I don't want to go too far into it, but say in the brutes, that is the non-rational animals, the eternal law is applied to them in their natural inclinations, right? So badgers and birch trees, by their very nature, by their very natural inclinations, have a tendency to follow the eternal law, right? Now, in us, it's more complicated, but there is this similarity. We do have within us some basic inclinations towards our goods, for example, towards self-preservation, right? Towards the preservation of the species, right? We already have inclinations in that direction. Now, in order to act on those inclinations well, we have to involve our reason, right, to find out what is the true end of those natural inclinations. But again, we already have natural inclinations at work, right? Again, they cooperate with reason, reason cooperates with them, and that reveals to us in that cooperation between our natural inclinations and our reason a set of natural goods, natural ends that we ought to pursue and that we in fact do pursue. We are inclined to pursue. You know, I really, I don't have to argue you into self-preservation. What I can say is that in addition to wanting self-preservation, you're right to want it, right? Within certain bounds, right? It's it's good for you. You ought to uh, act in a way that preserves uh, your own life, right? So um, uh, the natural law then is revealed to us through the work of the cooperation of our reason and our natural inclinations. 
Thomas Aquinas likes to say that that the light of na- of our natural reason is the natural law in a sense, right? Because it's the natural law that again discerns that this is what is naturally good for us. It is reason that distinguishes good human action, right? And so it is uh, uh, the uh, you know the the reality, the substance of natural law, is articulated by human reason, seeing what is really good for us. So. You know, what is the rational pursuit of self-preservation, the rational pursuit of the preservation of the species, the rational pursuit of political community? You know, that that's the kind of questions, right, that uh, reason, again, working with our natural inclinations, is able to discern and directs us towards, right? Reason directs us towards, you know, do good and avoid evil. Do that which is perfective of your nature, Avoid that which is not perfective of your nature. Right? Very good then. So uh, in that sense, we can say reason legislates the natural law. The only thing I just want to be a little bit careful about is we need to understand that that's sort of a subordinate legislation. There's a prior legislation, and that is the eternal law. Thomas is very clear about this, that reason itself is a light that participates in the light of eternal law. The reason that re the cause that re that makes it such that reason can rightly discern the natural law is that the human reason is an imprint, an imitation of a participation of that higher light, which is the eternal mind and the eternal law. Right. So when we're when we talk about it legislating, this is a, a sort of secondary legislation, a secondary application that. Um, uh, presupposes the prior legislation of the eternal law, right? So uh, I hope that that's, that's clear, right? And it's very important to understand then that the natural law is intimately, directly, and necessarily connected to the eternal law. In Thomas's view, okay, it's possible at a practical level that a man could follow the natural law or learn some of the aspects of the natural law and apply them without fully understanding, right, all of the the metaphysical background, right? But metaphysically speaking, there would be no natural law without God, okay, in Thomas's view. Obviously, there would be no nothing existing without God. But even outside of that radical metaphysical truth, even here in this, in this matter, right, the... Um, it's because God has already ordered creation, right? It's because God has already designed and created a natural order with natural ends that he has legislated, right? It's because of that prior legislation that there is a legislation for, there is a design, I should say, for human reason to discover and then to legislate, right? So, the the it's that prior work of God, right, is uh, essential, right, in the reality and full normative force of the natural law, right. Um, so I think a, a, a decent person could understand that adultery is wrong from the perspective of the natural law. He wouldn't understand, uh, and he could give you a partial account of why it's wrong, perhaps. But he wouldn't understand the full um, depravity of uh, adultery 
without knowing that fuller picture, right? And certainly it belongs to wisdom, right? To know that fuller picture, to know the full causes, right? Of the natural law. In the Thomas tradition, then it's just important, even though natural law is a, uh, a good and useful guide, it is not metaphysically sufficient unto itself. It depends upon a higher order of law. And I would say that it's not morally complete in itself, right? To understand the full morality of an action, we need to see its relationship to the eternal law. So the natural law is just that part of the eternal law that we can know through our natural reason. Now, maybe this is an episode we could come back to. If you'd like me to spend more time talking about the relationship between the eternal law and the natural law, you know, please leave your comments uh, in uh, below, and I'd be happy to, to explore that further. Now, I've gone out of order here just a little bit, but on purpose, because I, I, it just for pedagogical reasons, I find that talking about the natural law before the divine law is uh, helpful sometimes to some people. If it's not to you, I apologize. But remember, we have at the very top the eternal law. We've talked about the natural law is that part of the eternal law that may be known by reason. But in addition to the natural law, very importantly, there is the divine law. Divine law is basically, I think in St. Thomas's view, sacred scripture, right? And by extension, sacred tradition. Uh, but just for the sake of ease of conversation, I'll just talk, refer to it as, as uh, scripture. Basically, this is revelation the revealed eternal law, right? Revealed to Moses and the prophets and to the apostles, right? Uh, in the New Testament. And of course, revealed uh, most uh, dramatically and efficaciously in the person work of Jesus Christ. So um, the uh, revealed law, right? Um, the divine law, right? Is that part that has been revealed. This is, um, uh, of course, very important to us. Um, for one reason, right, there's much that's revealed in the divine law that we could never know with our human reason. So remember what I was talking about earlier, those parts of the eternal law that are either contingent or strictly per se supernatural mysteries, those things we could never know for sure with uh, just working with our natural reason. But with divine law, we can know about these things. So things like the virgin birth, the immaculate conception, um, the hypostatic union, the incarnation, uh, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, these sorts of matters, right, are matters that we can know through revelation, right, that is, we know them in divine law, right? Uh, certainly, um, there's much about the mystery of uh, the history of redemption, right, that we couldn't guess, right, you know, for example, the specific role of Joshua, uh, in, in this, or the specific roles of maybe the temple and garden, right? Again, God could have used different symbols, you know, he, he chose those. Uh, I trust, you know, of course, with, with this, the, all the insight and veracity of divine wisdom. Um, but these are things now that have been revealed to us, right? And so that when we think about God and redemptive history, we think about Joshua, we think about God's chosen people, we think about the exile from Egypt. Those are the these great building blocks of revelation, right, that, that help us to understand God's uh, 
mission to us. We think about temples and gardens and, and trees, right? The tree of life, right? Uh, at the very beginning of scripture and at the end of scripture. So um, these are, are precious matters. Uh, again, both uh, precious because they are contingent and unknowable in themselves or because they are um, tied in with uh, per se supernatural mysteries. In addition to this, okay, we can see that there are some parts of the law, the divine law, and sacred scripture, that are that actually could be known with our natural reason, but would be known, as Thomas puts it, poorly, or only to a few, after much labor and with the addition of much error. Now, one of the things that I think is often the case is that sometimes. The importance of revelation is downplayed by St. Thomas's critics. I think that's not fair. I think it's unjust. Um, Thomas says that without divine revelation, only some matters, not all, but only some matters that are contained in revelation would be known by a few only after much hard labor, often poorly, and with the admixture of error. Much error, he actually says. So Thomas is no sort of blind, uh, naive optimist about human reason here, uh, but he does hold that there is you know, this possibility, right? That there are things in divine revelation that can be known just with human reason. Well, then why reveal them? Because they could only be had by a few after much labor and with the admixture of much error so that we might have them all Right, not just the few wise, but that all may have access to them and have them without admixture of error. God has revealed them in his divine law. Right. This makes good sense. Now, the divine law, of course, can be divided into the new law and the old law. The new law um, revolves around um interestingly what Thomas calls the law of grace. Uh, we might 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 we say the covenant of grace, uh um that is um made real and established. Etc. Beforehand, I will just say uh, before uh, some of my friends who are uh, into uh, biblical theology sort of maybe misunderstand. Thomas thinks that grace was active uh, in the um, in the under the old covenant as well. So uh, let's not uh, make any mistakes there, right? Uh, Thomas thought that he thinks that grace was necessary uh, after the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, but continuing on, the um, the new law is where grace is fully actualized, right? You could say uh, it's full, made fully manifest um, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and of course in the establishment of His Church and the sacraments. Um, the old law prefigures the new. Uh, it is important as a sign, as an explanation, as a preview of the new. I don't think you can just have the new without the old. So I think this this signification matter goes in both directions. Some people sort of jump to the conclusion: well, almost at a practical level, you don't really need the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament, since everything's been fulfilled in the New Testament, uh, or you only understand the Old Testament by reading the New Testament. I actually think it works in both directions. I think that uh, these are the signs of it that God has established. I don't think those signs simply cease to to function altogether. Uh, even if uh, the New Testament 
is the thing signified? So I think you know the the both of these are are to be understood um, in a mutual reciprocal way, of course, with the ultimate reference point being Jesus Christ. But uh, nevertheless, um, for our purposes here, what I want to uh, highlight is that the old law uh, Thomas divides into three sections. This is a very um, standard division that he makes. Again, not at all unique to him. It's a division that you'd find in Alphonse Gori, you even find in many early Protestant theologians, and that is uh, the distinction between the judicial, moral, and ceremonial precepts, right? That is, uh, the judicial cover the sort of punishments, right? Sort of kind of the um, temporal, the, the sort of political law of the kingdom of Israel. The ceremonial uh, cover, uh, you know, the all of the the... You know, much of what you find in Leviticus and so forth about uh, you know, temple about purity, uh, purity laws, about uh, what sacrifices are to be made and when they're to be made, right? And then finally, the moral. This division is important because, right, for Thomas, the judicial and the ceremonial are signs, and those signs have been fulfilled in the New Testament and the personal work of Jesus Christ, and therefore they they don't necessarily need to be. Um, uh, extended, right? Uh, so, for example, the ceremonial precepts, we don't need to sacrifice lambs anymore because all of those sacrifices of lambs were sort of prefigurements and, you know, remote participations in the one, right, uh, uh, sacrifice of the one holy true lamb, Jesus Christ, right? So, we, may, we, do, we do not need to perpetuate those ceremonies uh, any further because the thing signified, the reality signified by those ceremonial precepts has in fact arrived. But we do need to keep the moral precepts. And this is very important. Thomas says that the moral precepts, summarized in the Ten Commandments, we'll say, are reflections of God's own essence, which doesn't change, right? So for that, for that reason, right, the moral precepts uh, remain. Now, very importantly, the moral precepts are, for the most part, practically identical to the natural law. So again, the moral precepts of the divine law are practically identical to the precepts of the natural law. Not 100%. There's some exceptions. There's a couple blurry things around the edges. But, but for the most part, I mean, overwhelmingly, right? Those precepts of the moral law that we find in the Old Testament, in the Old Law, belong to the natural law as well. Then why were they revealed in the divine law? Because of what I said before. Because uh, only uh, some would know them, and with much difficulty, and with the admixture of much error. This is a very important because it you know it really kind of goes to well if we know this natural law why do why do humans keep violating well one because we're bad and because of you know fall, we have our fallen nature and original sin etc uh, the you know human depravity but in addition to that or along with that depravity goes a darkening of the intellect right and this is again this is part of the Catholic intellectual, you know, part of the tradition uh, of Catholic truth, um, that uh, the intellect is not as uh, acute as it would be because of sin. So um, 
In any event, what I want you to see here and really hold on to is that the natural law and the moral law within the divine law are practically identical. So I'm going to simplify this and say the natural law and the moral law. Just remembering that the moral law, when I talk about that way, is what's contained in Scripture. The natural law and the moral law are practically identical. All right. Second important point to remember about them, so that's our connections there, is that both the natural law and the divine law, of course, come from God. These are not things that hang out in the ether, right? These are are, are manifestations, presentations of the eternal law of God. So they have their origin in something outside of themselves, right? They come from something, all right? Good. Um, so the uh, um, I want you to hold on to those two parts. I think that will be very helpful in what I'm coming to next. So fine, let's get to the human law, all right? I know I've been going long, but this is a complicated topic. So if you don't, if you want a sim, an, an oversimplistic view of it, it um, this, this is the right podcast for you. But um, I'm trying to give you a detailed account of Thomas's position. So the human law. Human law is very important in St. Thomas. This is what we would call the political law. This is the law of the state, the law of the political community. Um, there is, of course, you know, in our own time, especially in the United States, a kind of an antipathy, I would say, to human law, I understand and sympathetic to, to that attitude, given many of the failures of human law, I guess I would say, we see manifest. Nevertheless, we have to, I think, you know, concede that human law is good and human government is good. They're not necessary evils. They're part of human flourishing, right? Um, and this includes the human law, right? Political law. Political law, human law, just like all law, of course, has to come from a legitimate authority. It has to be for the common good. It has to be based in truth about what's really desirable, right? Um, it has to, um, you know, be a rule and measure that binds. Um, what I want to emphasize, especially here, just to avoid any misunderstandings, is that Thomas, following classical political philosophy, Thinks, uh, you know, thinks legitimate authority can take many forms. It's not just democracy, whatever that is. Okay, um, it's you know, it could be vaguely democratic or you know, a, re a republic form of government. It could be aristocratic. It could be monarchical. It could be many different sorts of arrangement. For Thomas, the 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 particular style or form of the regime is not the most critical question. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. Um, what is important, right, is that that established authority, whatever it is, rules according to what's truly desirable, that is, uses reason for the common good, not just the good of the individual, and prohibits and compels on the basis of that common enjoyment of what is really desirable for the whole, right? That is a huge topic in itself. Again, I've dealt with that. I think uh, we have a um, a podcast called The Foundations of Political Wisdom, and one of those is on 
the common good. So if you want to understand that uh, more specifically, the political common good, please go and listen to that podcast. I think it's really excellent. It will answer many of your questions, and I'll be happy to return to it again if you have specific questions. Um, but what I want to focus on here is the idea that this has to be in accordance with reason, therefore it has to be in accordance with truth and reality. So what this means is that our political laws must be consistent with what's truly desirable for us in common. So it can't be ordered towards just a faction or individual. And it has to be ordered towards what's truly desirable. Now, very importantly, Thomas is a realist in matters of political community. That is, he says, you know, not every community is going to be capable of living up to the perfection of what's truly desirable. Um, and that might be forever. Maybe that might not just be a temporary condition, right? Um, and so when Thomas says, and what I say, trying to catch the flavor of Thomas's view here, that the the laws, the moral laws, or the human law has to be consistent with what's truly desirable. That doesn't mean that every that it will command everything that's truly desirable. It's just consistent with it. Maybe to put it uh, more, even more precisely, not contrary to it. If you're ruling, let's say that you're a prince and you, and according to your constitution, have pretty wide powers. But if you're a prince and you rule over a pretty vicious community, a community with deep, long formed habits of vice and error and so forth, you know, besotted with greed, materialism, and consumerism, you know, you can't just immediately think, okay, well, I'm going to try to make all these people live according to the spirit of St. Francis. This is not going to happen, right? It's not, it's, it would be imprudent, right, to try to enforce that through law, right? Um, however, like, let's just take greed, you know, you shouldn't, uh, uh, do anything that makes the matter worse, <laughs> right? That is, you shouldn't do anything that further secures greed or advances greed, right? Or encourages greed, right? So you might recognize, hey, I can't quite, I'm going to have to just, you know, deal with curbing the worst aspects of my greedy populace, but I'm certainly not going to make any laws that advance greediness. I hope that makes sense, right? Um, so you, you, what you want to do then is avoid things that are contrary to true human flourishing. That doesn't mean you're going to command everything that's in keeping with human flourishing. There are going to be some things you might even just want to leave up to the parts of the community because they belong more properly to the parts. Uh, that's a disputed question about how far that should go. Um you know, where that, that line falls. Right. But what I'm really want to focus on here is the idea that human law has to be consistent with human flourishing, right? At the very minimum, that means it must not command or enjoin or protect anything that's contrary to human flourishing. Okay. That's what I mean by consistent with the natural law. Now, I've talked a lot now about law, and since talking about the eternal law, I haven't said too much about God. 
does this all connect with God? How does this bring God into the picture of the rule over the political community? Well, um, if you go back to those two points I made earlier that I want you to remember about moral law and natural law, the connection should emerge to your mind. The old law, sorry, the moral law and the natural law are practically identical. And both come from the eternal law. So they have their origin in God. What the prince does within his kingdom is apply the moral law or the natural law, if you prefer, to the populace. And in doing so, applies part of God's own eternal law to political community. So when the prince rules in a way that's consistent with natural law, he is in fact subjugating uh, best word, but conforming his subjects to the rule of eternal law, right? And in this way, God rules over political communities through wise and just princes when they enforce the natural law, which is practically identical to the moral law contained within divine law. So you should sort of imagine for yourself almost kind of like a pyramid or a ladder with eternal law at the top that pours over into natural law and into um, moral law contained within scripture, and that those the prince takes and applies with wisdom and prudence, lots of qualifications, to political community. So in that way, we can talk about God um, ruling over the political community. So God is not left out of politics in the picture. In fact, far from it. God is the ultimate source of the very law that makes political community possible. At the same time, I do want to be straightforward and say that what I have given you is not an account that would uh, justify what we might call a confessional state, right? Um, what you might call, um, yeah, I think confessional state is probably the, the best way to put it. Um, why is that? Because uh, this sort of rule could be exercised, and Thomas says this, by a pagan prince. Right? The pagan prince who follows the natural law in his ruling over a political community is in fact, you know, <laughs> allowing God to rule over a community. And Thomas in indeed says that we should obey pagan princes as long as they follow the natural law. Because why? Because by doing so, we're obeying God. Insofar as they're enforcing the natural law, decently, we'll say, they are, in fact, enforcing God's rule over the political community. I think that maybe sits a little uncomfortably, <laughs> right, uh, for some. But I think uh, that makes sense, right, uh, in Thomas's view and the view of law that I've laid out here. 
in this rule, you know, political rule is going to be consistent with the divine law, even if the prince isn't up there sort of, you know, quoting Deuteronomy or quoting Exodus when he um, will say jails thieves, right, or punishes thieves uh, as he should when he punishes the thief um, or punishes those who, um, the greedy and rapacious. Uh, he is, in fact, acting in a way that's consistent with the natural law, right? And in, sort of in, and in doing so, is extending God's rule within the political community, right? Um, now, I do want to say there is a part of this that I've left off. And those who know St. Thomas well in political matters are probably alert to this. So there is more to be said, but I've already gone very long. And at this point, I want to wrap up, right, this part of my exposition. At some other point, I will come back to talking about St. Thomas and the question of the confessional state or what some call integralism, right, and whether or not St. Thomas's um, political theories uh, support that form of polity. But for now, I think I made a good case for the idea that insofar as the natural law is applied consistently within politics, that in fact, the law of God and God's rule has been extended. Well, friends, I'm sure that there's a lot here to think about, right? Uh, it hits you with a lot of details. So a lot of rabbit holes we could have pursued, but I hope that, at least in some parts, the, in some ways, this has, uh, um, you know, St. Thomas's approach here has brought some clarity uh, to this matter, giving you more to think about, and hopefully uh, things to, to pray about and things to further research and read and um, enjoy. If you have any questions, please leave them in the comments. Until next time, God bless.